0: Hello and a warm welcome to episode 109 of the Building Sustainability podcast. I'm Jeffrey Hart and every fortnight join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers. Together we can explore the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. And today's wonderful person is Matthew Barnett Howland. He's Director of Research and Development at CSK Architects in Eton, and also Associate Professor at the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. Alongside Dido Milne and Oliver Wilton, he created Cork House, in which we recorded this conversation. And the episode is all about Cork House. So what is Cork House? From Matthew's website, Corkhouse is a brand new and radically simple form of plant-based construction. Monolithic walls and corbelled roofs are made almost entirely from solid, load-bearing cork. This highly innovative self-built construction kit is designed for disassembly, is carbon negative at completion, and has an exceptionally low whole-life carbon. And the awards list for Corkhouse is quite something. Architects Journal House of the Year 2019, the REBA Stephen Lawrence Prize 2019, the REBA President's Award for Research 2019, it was shortlisted for the Sterling Prize, Uh, the American Institute for Architects International Regional Design Awards 2020 received an Honor Award for Architecture and Sustainable Future Award, Architecture Master Prize 2020 Best of Best in Green Architecture, It got the Reba National Award in 2019. It got the Wood Awards 2019 Gold Award. Structural Timber Awards 2020. It was the Private Housing Project of the Year. It was the Sunday Times British Home Awards 2019 Small House of the Year. And a whole load more others. So stay tuned for this fantastic conversation that was so in-depth that I've had to split it over two episodes. So before we get into the episode, there is the usual bits and bobs. Uh, starting with there is a free exhibition at the design museum in london called how to build a low carbon home how can we design our homes to respond to climate emergency discover how architects are reimagining wood stone and straw to design homes fit for the future so that features friends of the podcast material cultures a whole load of exhibitions scale models photographs tools and samples that you can see the uh, the real-life materials. So head on over to that if you are in the London area. Um, there is a reminder that our Christmas special on this podcast will once again be a very informal chat with Mike the Bite Hill. Uh, it's going to be another light-hearted chat over a couple of eggnogs. And we are throwing open the topics of discussion to you, the listeners. So drop me an email with any questions or themes that you'd like us to cover. Nettlecombe Craft School, the website is live. Uh, head on over to nettlecombecraftschool.com. You can see all the courses we've got running there. And currently, up until the 30th of November, there is a competition over on the Instagram page uh, where uh, you can win a free course. So to do that, get to the Instagram or you get an entry just by signing up for our newsletter on the website. So nettlecombecraftschool.com or I'll chuck a link in the show notes to the Instagram. Uh, We've just added a longbow making weekend, which I cannot wait for. Last time I told you about an ACAN, Architects Climate Action Network talk that I was doing about installing low carbon flooring. It was fantastic to be part of that alongside a host of excellent presenters and friend of the podcast will stanix was there as well i'll put a link to the recording in the show notes have a look at that if that's your thing uh patrons for the podcast we have one new supporter this week and that is sam goats uh thank you sam we've actually uh recorded the first half of the podcast episode together so look out for that coming some point in either december or january in the meantime check out woven in the bone on instagram for an absolute treat If you find this podcast useful and or entertaining and would like to support us, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. It's quite a lot of hard work and a lot of time to produce this podcast. So it would be really gratefully received and you can get yourself 12 hours of bonus chat uh, as a thank you for supporting. Uh, That isn't the only way you can support though. You can, of course, share the podcast on your favorite social media outlet Uh, You can leave a little review on Apple Podcasts or give it a five star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts again. Um, And did you know that there is a Facebook group, Building Sustainability Community, where you can discuss the episodes and say what you liked, say what you didn't, thoughts that come up. For me personally, it's lovely to hear what you thought of the episode as it is very much a one-way medium. Finally, uh, there is some advertising. Uh, I'm afraid that you're going to hear more adverts on this podcast from now on. Um, I tried really hard to keep the podcast advert free, uh, but for this to be financially sustainable for me, I'm afraid I have to put them on. Um, hopefully they don't interrupt your listening too much. Um, but I really thank you for understanding. I think that's all the news items. Uh, Final bits before we get into the podcast. Corkhouse is underneath Heathrow flight path. So there are planes rumbling by at relatively regular intervals. I've done my best to filter them out, but uh, apologies if that is distracting. Also, both Matthew and I, I would say, are partial to a tangent. Um, We both... Did our very best to keep this conversation on track. But honestly, we zigzag around materials, process, concepts, funding, details. And at the end of this episode, it goes to a place where I really couldn't have predicted. And it was a really surprising and heartfelt turn that uh, caught me quite off guard. So I'm really honoured that Matthew uh, shared that. And I hope you will enjoy that too. Um, So that is it from me. I am back at the end. And remember, there is a whole nother episode with Matthew straight after this one. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn
1: Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: Across the work and the teaching and the research at the bar, I guess the common thread is what we started calling a sort of whole life approach to architecture, and mm-hmm. to environmental sustainability in particular. Um, so sort of parallel thread, so what we call the architecture life cycle or, or, or the building life cycle sometimes, um, as a sort of time-based process and what that means in terms of environmental sustainability at each of those life cycle stages, um, but also obviously what that means in terms of design decisions at each of those stages and how that contributes to the character, because ultimately, my real interest is an architect probably is in architectural character. Okay. Probably more, well, not more, anyway, they they run side by side. But you know, if it doesn't end up in something like this that's, that's compelling spatially and materially... Yeah. And it's just a lot in it. It's interesting from a sustainability point of view. And then I start to lose interest. Okay. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Yeah, I I can understand that because yeah, it's a real, you know, because as uh, an architect, obviously you're interested in in making it a real, <laughs> real life, a real life experience. Yeah. And you know, it's not an idea. It's not an essay. It's not some writing or a thought or it's an actual spatial embodied. It's an embodied experience. Is what it really comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, and so we are sat
0: in the cork house. Mm. Is it made entirely of cork? Um,
2: <laughs> visually, I, it's, it I, is. Visually, I guess that was the, that's the sort of starting point in you know, how much uh, of this building could be made in a single plant-based material. In this instance, cork. Um, but obviously, you know, no, it's combined with other materials, as are all buildings. You know, but I guess, I guess the difference is, is that obviously buildings are big, complex assemblies of often hundreds, maybe thousands of materials, um, and even different materials within each of those materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in this case, probably what really drove the project was that. Starting point about the simplicity of the building envelope, the monolithic mono nature Mm -hmm. uh, of the building. How much can we make this building out of out of only cork? I mean, in the end, obviously the answer isn't obviously as simple as the question. But yeah, um, so yes, you know there are steel screw piles. um, Most lateral load is taken with the timber elements you can see, um, which sustain the black. Uh That's all. Lateral load, but all vertical load, is taken in compression through the cork, the building envelope, is cork, blocks of expanded cork, which you can see on the inside, is the same as the block you see on the outside, so there's no cavity, Mm -hmm. no ties, no extra insulation, no breathing membranes, no plasters, no renders, no air gaps, Um, it's just big Blocks of uh, yeah, as you said earlier, Lego cork. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, and then as we as we were yeah, to, to so to achieve air tightness on the in, and on the joints between the blocks, there's the expanding foam air tightness tape, which is a petrochemical pro, uh, product. Mm. Um, there's obviously it's glass, you know, acoya windows and so on, timber floor. Um, but generally, one of the rules was if if it's not cork. And can it be timber and if it's not cork and timber can it be other plant-based materials and if it can't be those but you have to introduce other materials how are they introduced to the cork and the timber um so that at the end of its life mm-hmm. um they can it can fall apart as it were in an, in, a, in an elegant way in terms of the material life cycle yeah you know, the material life cycles go on across well forever um, and the building life cycle tends to be, well, weirdly, it tends to be around the same length as a human lifetime. Okay. On average. I mean, obviously, the are lots of buildings which last longer, lots of which last less than that. Mm. Um, and hopefully, obviously, current thinking is that buildings will will, will become a longer lifespan on average. But at the moment, it's there's no definitive research on it. But let's say it's around 60 to 100 years. I mean, mm-hmm. the life cycle assessments have done over 50 to 60 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, buildings are periodic events in the life cycle of materials. Um, so I guess it's just understanding. We're trying to sort of resolve that parallel life cycle story. You know, materials come together into building, come apart, back into materials, and back into and so on. Um, and obviously that's that's even more complicated because there are so many different material life cycles um, within each building, some of which uh, are, come from renewable resource systems, some of which come from finite resource systems, and, you know, and they say that the way that the building relates to those earth systems, if you like, that all materials come from um, is, is, well, it's complex, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's about the only definitive thing I could say. <laughs> Christ, it's To summarise. <laughs> Very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> but fascinating and therefore endlessly fascinating in terms of um, what that means uh, in terms of architecture and space and mm-hmm. construction and structure yeah um, was <laughs> <laughs> was
0: this building always going to be cork or there other were there if you were thinking about you know the 100 close to 100% one material were there other contenders uh,
2: at the time um, it was just Funny story, um, so the, we, I met someone who was thinking along with the, the same lines. Well, he, he thought of this before I had. Um, he, we got someone in to look at overcladding um, using the cork as external wall insulation on, on the Georgian house, right. just over there, um, as a breathable EWI. Um, and he was an interesting character in one of those funny eccentric types and he, just, and he just started talking to me and I went down to see him in his workshop and he had this funny wall made of cork and lime um, mortar and he was just, yeah, and I started in there. Anyway, the, from there it sort of rolled on and I tried to include him in the project initially, well, to get to work with him to do this and then it just didn't happen for some reason. Um, then I ended up going through this whole research route uh, with universities and and, and industry partners and so on. Um, anyway... Um, to go back to your original question, <laughs> uh, I told you that would happen. Um, uh, no, it was, it was about cork, yeah, right from the outset. I mean, it, it's a funny material because I'm not sure there is anything else you could do it with. I mean, it has huge limitations, not huge, it has limitations mm-hmm. um, in that as the jack-of-all-trades that you're asking to do all the different functions... You know, so obviously getting a material to perform as structure, which requires a certain density and strength, which is usually pretty counter to what you need from a material for insulation. Yes. Um, This is a sort of, so this is a kind of, it just about does each of the requirements that you need just about okay? Yeah. It doesn't really excel. So obviously that limits it in terms of its applicability. You know, obviously when we we, we first made the house, we weren't thinking about any of these, Issues about broader applicability. If I'm honest, really, it was never an idea to sort of um, challenge the construction industry or anything like that. Yeah. Which, which is some of the conversations that followed on. It was at the time. It was really. It was a personal interest in simple, solid building envelopes mm-hmm. and sort of anti-complexity. You know, in the office, you know, I found myself just drawing. Well, just the usual stuff. You know walls, and and just one day just thinking, God, this is just such a load of crap. Yeah. You know, for all sorts of reasons, uh, individually, the materials, but then actually when you put it all together, it's just this fairly grim conglomeration of things, um, an aggregate, you know, uh, and it just didn't feel very good. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel, uh, wholesome a weird word, but it just didn't. Mm, even even um, sort of uh, tectonically or, or, or yeah tectonically is a bit of a funny word but um, what do I mean materially spatially sculpturally, you know it just it doesn't feel like a, a real thing that you're working with and and that's what I really enjoyed in going through the research stuff and being in the workshop with the blocks and machining them and the fabric and working with it and you know understanding the material that you're making the building with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and really, that's that's what I was loving. Not working with building products um, that are all packaged up, you know, and then you're bringing together 25 or 50 different building products. You know, this is really working with essentially two materials. Yeah. Um, materials, <laughs> not products. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yes, that's interesting, actually, because, I mean, that's sort of where I have traditionally placed myself in, in sort of building work. It's working with materials, you know, that might be straw or hemp or timber or uh, cork more recently. yeah. But, um, it's, and it's sort of moved, it's transitioned more into a, a sort of product-based thing as I'm sort of feeling the need to, I guess, if we're going to save the world, it needs to be accessible to everyone is sort of the, the mindset shift. Yeah, you know, it's all very well building straw bale buildings that are all wibbly wobbly and uh, sort of built by communities and things, mm. but it's sort of the scalability of it is—it's mm. sort of product-based, I think.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah, we've I've been asked lots of questions about scalability. Mm. Um, doesn't interest me really. Right, <laughs> shut that one down. <laughs> I don't mean that it isn't important. Yeah. I just saying it. The more I, I sort of went off, and you know, you you because it, it it you know it hit it hit lots of press and so on, and lots of public interest in it, and so you find yourself obviously quite willingly engaging in those conversations and being led. And, and then after you know, I don't know what it is now, four or five years, you sort of come back and you think, actually, was I really interested in that, mm-hmm. <laughs> or was I just being a good boy answering yeah, 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 other yeah yeah people's questions? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I probably was.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's interesting, I mean, I hadn't thought about the idea of sort of monolithic buildings since my days doing Cobb, mm. and that was my, my sort of
2: entry into mm. monolithic ideas. Uh, yeah, that's the core of it. Yeah. That is definitely the core of it. It's not actually about Cork, cork this building. Really, for me. I mean, interestingly, it's tectonic, architecture is actually a stone construction. Right. You know, when you look at it, even start, when, once you go look at it, you know, it's big blocks of thermal stone. Yeah. And Even the way, you know, this architecture from several thousand years ago was, has always been delivered in stone. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's, you know, all sorts of places around the world have got this sort of architecture. Um, that you're sort of pointing at the the pyramid. Sorry.
0: What, what <laughs> do you call these pyramids? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah corbelled pyramids. It's. I mean, it is. We were talking about hempcrete earlier, mm. and I suppose the the structural element of cork makes it a lot more
2: versatile. Mm. I'm not sure it's got a great deal more structural performance than hemp crate. Oh really? I mean obviously it probably I mean it's got enough to hold up a single story house. Right. But it does creep. You know this so when we built the the eaves beam in here which the windows slot underneath
0: Mm
2: -hmm. um, you know we had to leave a gap of sort of 30-35 millimetres there for the structure to creep down.
0: Oh interesting.
2: Um, How long did that take? Most of it happened in the first year so there's two places which the house ties down um, to timber structure there and there. Those six, so these six bolts there, the three there and mm-hmm. this over there, they're what stop the whole house just flattening right in okay. a gust of wind. Um, but those brackets there that you can't in that beam are slotted connections, so they stop that, but they allow that. So, they, uh, if you were to describe your hand actions, then <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So those. Um, Six bolts. They stop sideways movement, any lateral wind load, yeah, um, which it, which it then transfers that force down back into the foundations. Um, but it, but they but it's free to move vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I see. Which allows the creep. Yeah, and do you, and do you know if there's
0: been any more in there? There will be more. I
2: mean, I don't know whether this is of any. This is, I don't know. It's just maybe say things like this, but um, on the big door there. So the most load per square inch of wall if you like in plan is happening on this pier here just behind you yeah it's obviously got a big opening here Mm -hmm. 1.9 meters and a big opening there so that's the only place in the house so this bit of wall here is obviously taking um more load per square inch than any other part of the house (sighs) so it crept more and it crept more than the research showed it would um, so what? So when I came to put in um, this window, actually, it's what happened. I came up near nearing the end of the house. Everything's in roof lights on. Put the windows in. And I offered it up, and it. I couldn't get it to go into the gap vertically. Yeah. It just hit that ring beam there. I thought, Christ, I've made a mistake. I went back to look at the drawings, dimensions, and, and obviously it dawned on me in the rather horrible half an hour, as those things tend to unfold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Cheat>. <laughs> um yeah, it, it crept. So I had to go. I think got a couple of acro props, jacked up the whole roof on the house on the, using these two beams here, jacked yeah. it up. Um, and then, so in in the jam of the windows, so well, this isn't going to translate very well, but I'll tell you anyway. In the jam of the windows, there is a machined groove um, on both sides of all the openings, and then you put a little four by two batten which friction fits in, mm-hmm. and then you can bolt that window through to that so each of the windows you see those three bolts I there and there's yes, three bolts yeah. on the side so all the windows come out with six bolts so it literally would just pop out um so we had to go and beef those up on on these two openings here to make them four by fours so interestingly those in this part of the house just here with the two big openings that's actually a hybrid structure more in the most of the load is being taken through the cork Mm -hmm. but there's a piece of timber which is like a stop gap a stop post yeah yes just stops it 10 millimeters above the window so i know it can't creep any more than that in this location here it may well have crept more in other locations um yeah so that was it but then that gave us an idea then for interestingly you know for a hybrid you see it felt like a disaster at the time and talking to arabs engineers and on christ anyway it was it's not a it's not a complicated house or structure we solved it pretty easily but that, interesting led to another, you know, that actually maybe four-by-four four posts with the stop beam and then the cork isn't performing completely structurally, and then that takes the fire load off the cork, potentially. Mm. Anyway, it became an interesting idea for for another project we've, we've worked on since this, which was a, for a big cork and timber warehouse for a German client in, in Hamburg, um, in which the timber would be the structural frame. But then the cork becomes just infill, now, which... It's interesting because these are the this
0: is the discussion in the straw bale building world. Is you, know, you can use the straw bales as the the load the load bearing. There is compression over time, hmm. uh, or you can build a timber structure and infill, and people go, "Oh, you know, we don't want to use timber." Uh, it's sort of the, the stacking functions idea of using one material to do yeah the sort of thing barbara things. jones stuff I mean, yes exactly yeah, yeah um yeah and there's there's great sort of debates about which one's right um yeah, as you say though, if, you if you want to roll,
2: roll it out though yeah yeah i mean you, you know you just got to have that sort of predictability haven't you and, and mm-hmm. mainstream you know get the warranties and performances known and engineered and yeah yeah having a nice big squidgy thing that is taking load and, taking load and moving is a, is a nice idea, but probably limits it. So it's <laughs> the mainstream, yeah.
0: Yes, makes engineers a bit twitchier. Like yeah, it. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, should we talk cork in more? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's wonder material. I've, I've got, mm. yeah, it's on the inside of my house on the, and on the outside. Um, just well, it's a thermal bridge break for me, um, and also a cladding. Um, is not sort of how I've used it. But I mean, well, when you clad it, how have you clad it? I screwed it
2: on. I didn't Onto listen, onto a timber frame. With a gap behind it? No, directly on. Then what's in between? The sorry, <laughs> no, 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 what's for in it? between the timber frame?
0: Um, so the the timber frame with a, an OSB sheathing. Then there's a, a vapour membrane,
2: then it's the cork. Okay, so like a breather membrane on the outside of the sheathing? Yes.
0: Okay.
2: You, uh, by all means, tell me if I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just know that the cork's funny and it, 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 it's breathable and so on, but there's this, this always interesting thing, isn't it, of trapping moisture with these materials Yeah. And, and giving it nowhere to go. Yes. I mean, I've got it in one or two places where I've used a breather membrane and it was it's always the bits that make me feel the most nervous. Okay. In a way. Yeah. Just, where does it, you know, these breather membranes work when you've got air above them. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm my limited understanding of, of building physics is it works best when there's air moving across the surface of the breather membrane rather than it being... Right. Although right. I have got cases here. Again, I probably shouldn't say it, one or two plates. Where, yeah, that, that is the case, and that always makes me think. Mm, I wonder how it does that. Really breathe. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I hadn't been nervous about that until now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, when an art, if you're an artist, you're the builder, designer, and you're and you're doing these things, stuff with materials, and you've got to accept that that nervousness comes with the territory, haven't you? Yes. Partly.
0: Well, no one else was um, was screwing it to anything. It was all you know, lime, a lime bedding. Uh, sort of mortar
2: to stop the moisture going in. Yes, like an overcoat. Yeah, I mean that—that's you know that has a logic to it. But then again, you lose the
0: not as an overcoat. Sorry, uh, as a most people were using it as like external wall insulation, where they sort of plaster the house and then squidge the the cork into the the lime. So it was the the fixing was the lime,
2: like a sort of bedding mortar. Yes,
0: exactly, and then leaving it exposed. I asked quite a few people if I could screw it on, and they said no. And then I just did it anyway. Yeah,
2: it'll probably last longer than us. Yeah, I hope
0: so. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's probably not the way to look at one's PI. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this is all so terrible. Uh,
0: that all began with a question about. Uh, we were just going to talk more about cork, uh, as a material. Yes.
2: Yeah, expanded cork, specifically.
0: Yeah, so why don't we talk, first of all, say what that is.
2: So expanded cork um, is a small part of the cork industry. I can't remember what the figures are, but I think it was something like the cork wine stopper industry, which is obviously where cork originally was grown for commercially. Mm -hmm. um, is about, I don't know what it is, it's a quarter of a billion or something turnover, and then there's the cork, uh, ACC, uh, or sorry, ACC is a trade name, Amarin Cork Composites, um, uh, which is agglomerated cork uh, mixed with a binder. Um, as far as I'm wearing, more often than not, that is a um, polyurethane-based binder. That's mm-hmm. the sort of stuff that you see nice, sort of coasters and Ikea. Is that the floor tiles and the floor tiles? Yeah, uh, yeah. Which we I've got some of the so those in the bathroom in there, mm-hmm. and the, yeah, obviously as an as a uh, my dad was an architect, grew up in the 70s, and so we had lots of cork mm-hmm. tiles in kitchens and bathrooms and so on. So that's agglomerated cork, uh, and that's again a, a, a probably roughly the same, I think, a quarter of a billion or something. And then there's this tiny little, relatively tiny little industry uh, at the end of the food chain, if you like, in terms of cork which is uh expanded cork or essentially cooked cork or black cork they also call it mm-hmm. um because when it's cooked um it goes this brown colour with a little bit of charcoal in it, has a lovely um it's sort of smoky smoky yeah. smell. Um and that is a very unusual material for me anyway in, in in that it's a it's a Bio, it's an engineered biogenic um, material that's bonded in its own juices. So, good cork goes into the stoppers mainly. Then it gets the remainder, the remainder, sort of the remainder gets used in uh, uh, for industrial agglomerated cork, uh, and then any low-grade waste from that, and probably terms of volume, more importantly, any low-grade waste from the harvest, so lower grade cork from higher up the tree or on branches that aren't suitable, um, suitable grade of cork for for the first two industries, that um, gets granulated, put into these um, quite rudimentary uh, pressure cookers or autoclaves they call them, Um, uh, which is just a big steel box. Lid comes down on the hydraulic arm, um, steam is pumped in Um, They call it um, dry steam, which I still don't know what that means. That's that's very (laughs) counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, So it's about, I think it's something like 360 degrees centigrade, which they say over 90% uh, of which is generated using waste biomass energy to cook. Um, So the steam goes in, the granules um, expand... And at the same time as they expand, there are natural resin in the cork, which is called suberin, which is a, a, apparently is is a, is a fascinating uh, whole topic of biology uh, of its own. is a sort of a faintly sort of sort of wonder material. Right. Anyway, it's a natural resin that melts. It bonds these expanded granules back together into a kind of quite a dense rice krispie cake idea. Mm-hmm. It's the closest thing I think, um, and then that gets. Um, trimmed and cooled down and so on and made into these blocks and then they cut it more often than not it's cut into sheets of different thicknesses um, as insulation internal or external wall insulation but the basic billet size that comes out of the cooker is is one meter by 500 millimeters because that's the size of the pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get different thicknesses of block depending upon the grade. So more, so the origins uh, of expanded cork, it, it was originally known as um, insulating cork board, ICB. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, go, go back one more step there, sorry. Yeah, it's um, all good. So the guy, I think is called John Smith in America. There's an apocryphal story, which I think as far as I'm aware is true. Um, they were using granulated cork in life jackets because obviously it provides buoyancy. Um, and he came back, he came to the factory one morning and uh, somewhere this cork had fallen into one of the braziers that the factory workers were using to keep warm. And it formed into this big coagulated mass and got all weird and sticky and brown and black. And he thought, well, that's got to be pretty useful for something. So um, he patented that uh, oh. expanded cork. That was when it was Armstrong Industries, I think in America. What sort of era is this? Uh, late 19th century, 1880 something, 1885 or something. So yeah, so the block size, so, so, so I was going, at it. so the original density is around 115 kilograms a cubic meter. That's insulation grade, so quite lightweight, quite aerated as it were. Hence, yeah. it's good for insulation. Um, and that comes, you can get that in about blocks around say 300 thick, maybe a bit more, depending, Um but then here, and I think the cork you've used in your house, is a product called MD Facade cork. Sorry, this is specifically Amarim now, sorry, yeah. who are the world's biggest cork manufacturer. About 50% of the market is, is Amarim. Um, so this MD Facade is about 100, roughly, on average, about 150 kilograms of cubic meters, so a bit denser, which makes it a bit more suitable to use as a building material that's going to be exposed internally or externally or even used structurally, like <laughs> we have used it. Um, and that comes in about 220 millimeters thick, maximum is what we're getting to give us. Um, so we've used it as blocks rather than sheets. It's probably what one, yeah. one, one, one I'm coming around to. Um, and so people would normally use it as sheets. So in elevation, it'd be one meter by 500 by however thick. We've turned an extra thick sheet or a block yeah. on its side. Uh-huh. So the wall's 500 millimetres thick by bricks to a metre long by, so in terms of the, that's the billet size, and the billet size of we, we, these, each of these blocks that you can see is a metre long by 500 thick in terms of the wall um, by 220 high, but by the time we have machined it, um, first of all to give dimensional um, accuracy, mm-hmm. so you can put the blocks together without glue or mortar, which was, we'll come to you later. Um, by the time you put a tongue and a groove into which, which is the system we were working with at the time, mm-hmm. um, you end up with 180 and eighty millimetre high courses by 480 thick, because you shave a bit off the yep. faces, um, and uh, 960 long. Now, the 960 is led by the 480, because if anyone who knows brickwork... Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, um, to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the offset of the roof here, which is quite wide-ranging, isn't it? The (laughs) offset of the roof (laughs) is uh, each time you can see up there, the corbels um, is 96 millimeters, which you'll see is obviously a a division, subdivision of 480 or 960. Right, yeah. Because obviously as you're climbing up the roof there in corbels, you've got to meet, you've got to course in with the blockchain plan. Yeah, so it's a little three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the one eighty course height isn't doesn't have any impact on that. Got you. In the same way, the, the brick height doesn't really impact upon the plan dimensions. It's only the plan dimensions really. And obviously, the moment you start corbelling, mm-hmm. um, then you've got to be yeah, the corbel has to tie in with those planned dimensions as well. Yeah. Yes. So, we started off talking about the cork. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think that, it's quite easy to talk about the roof, when it's just above us. Yeah, well, yeah. in a funny way, in a funny way, that is the sort of key point of the building. Going back to what we discussing with the life cycle, is, is that the material and what it's made with and how it's made and how that determines its performance characteristics Determines the architecture. Mm-hmm. You know? These roofs weren't made because I wanted to make pyramidal roofs. Right, that's not how it happened. You know, we get the cork, you understand it, find that bit about it, um, spend a couple of years doing little, funny little, testy type projects and mm-hmm. background research and trying to get grant money and so on. And then once you've understood it, then you start designing the building and you think, well, okay, so the idea here was to make a monolithic, simple building envelope. So. That's obviously quite straightforward for the wall. And what if I don't want to introduce another material or another type of structure or form of construction for the roof? Mm. So then obviously that leads you to looking back to these ancient corbelled constructions, which are all over the world. Um, so then that leads to the form and spatiality, not a very good word, uh, <laughs> of the buildings so the point being that the architectural character in use if you like in, in in that stage of the life cycle when the building's in use is deeply connected to going right back in into the you know into the nature of the material mm-hmm. um, and how it's cooked and and, and and even into the reason that the trees were grown in the first place for this first for Wine stoppers, and then there's, and then you end up with this little funny sidekick industry, the expanded cork, and then you know, being this pure plant based material with no other in it, which is a rather lovely idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, how you work with that, and then the idea then is as an architect, how do you preserve the lovely characteristics of the material um, so that when the building stops being a building, yeah, in say a 100 years, 200 years. where did, where does it go at the end of its life how do you then reconnect back with the life cycle of the material mhm so even and so that then leads you to then not bond the blo- blocks together yes with glue or mortar and Then the whole project being designed for disassembly which was a which was a whole rigour of, of its own obviously um so that is the yeah, that is the core of the project so that then even the The whole nature of the architecture, again, is connected to the life cycle stages after it's been a building in use. So, you know, not just for, so that's why I'm getting at, earlier on, we were talking about life cycles. You know, Mm -hmm. this really is a study in architecture uh, and material life cycles.
1: Yeah.
2: That's where, for me, it hits the nail. Pretty successfully on the head. Mm-hmm. Other ways, I'm very happy to, you know, and I've always been very open about limitations and its lack of scalability, mm-hmm. other issues as well, which we structured. We talked about, you know, there are lots of technical issues and so on. But for, if that's the thesis, then in, on on those terms, it it, it does it does it, it, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I would be disingenuous if i said that that thesis was fully formed from day 1 <laughs> it wasn't no eh? yeah i'm a big believer in in moving and changing and the way the winds blowing and it's a combination isn't it of setting a course but then reacting to conditions yes yeah if you just stick to that course yeah as a sort of you know like a sort of naval commander mm. 5000 people drowned because you didn't want to change course yeah um is a uh, when we started this in 2013, um, it wasn't, it, it was nothing like that in yeah. terms of fully formed. That, really, that evolved with the building and the building became a vehicle for me changing who I am, not just as an architect either, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of other ways. Um, and it's even been part of the, you know, it's even driven change in my life and my practice uh, as an architect since it was completed. though. Know? So it's right. it's an interesting, you know, um, in my lectures that we give, um, which I do quite a lot of lectures obviously as, as part of being an academic, And um, there's a really nice um, Elizabeth Gross quote. Um, he writes about Anthropocene and temporality in architecture. And I'm going to mangle the quote, so I won't try and quote it directly, but it, 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 um, it talks about uh, that, that matter and life become and become undone they transform and are transformed so just this lovely idea the whole reason in the way that you're an architect you, you intuitively as an architect you believe that you transform and build with the material and in return obviously you know, it transforms you eyes. why Why would you be an architect
0: yeah um, have you can, can i ask if if there's an example you can share of how it's changed, how it's changed either right? architecturally or personally
2: well my whole approach to environmental sustainability mm-hmm. or survivability as my friend david grandullas likes to call it <laughs> um or pro- what i started to say is environmental responsibility mm-hmm. um, i think it's a slightly nicer way of looking at it yeah um uh, yeah obviously it's completely changed my well, my approach to that um and it's been part of formulating a much bigger picture about architecture and materials and life cycles in general. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's reached out, and including other materials apart from cork and how, where they fit in. Going back to the conversation that we get earlier on when talking about finite and renewable mm-hmm. resource systems. And, and actually, through, through working with I, have, I work a lot with a colleague called Oliver Wilton. Uh, at the Bartlett School of Architecture, um, who was one of the co-designers on this with with, with Dido, my partner at work and and, and life partner, um, and we constantly—it's constantly having an impact on how we think. In that, uh, it's because we constantly really talk about it. Now. Mm-hmm. We, uh, Dido and and Oliver's partner, cash they're constantly laughing at us because we just sit there talking rubbish for hours um <laughs> but it's really important isn't it that, that that you know you've got the object and you talk about it and you know and then that, and in that in that conversation is where those transformations happen it, you know it doesn't i'm not just talking about you know things like when it transforms you in the in the way that, that architecturally it transforms you which obviously living in spaces and sensory impact of those materials and so on um but also yeah it, via conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking to and about and around the physical thing. Yeah. yeah. Shift huge shift, yeah, if I look where I was ten years ago as an architect. So I mean yeah, where were you ten years ago as an architect?
0: So um it was sort of sustainability that like, that's sort, of, sort of. No, a no, no, it term. wasn't. Off, but, um, was that on your radar? No, was? not
2: well, well, a little
0: bit. Because it's not a particularly, from the impression I get in architecture, is it's not it's not sort of front front and centre of education, and um, you sort of have to want to be a sustainable architect, or a conscious architect, perhaps.
2: Hopefully, that's less true as time goes mm. on. But certainly up till now, and including now, that is true, yes. Where was I? like? It. So, just trying to place where I was really, why I trained, a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, I was never that comfortable in architectural practice, really. I'm quite a physical mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of gorilla. Um and I like outdoors, and offices aren't outdoors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like making, and of course, as life's become increasingly digital during my lifetime at least, you know, I was still, when I started, had a set square and a T-square now on my yeah. drone board. Um, computers didn't exist, really. Um, so that's missing from the office life, isn't it? Um, so, I never particularly found really, I never really, I never really sort of thought. Well, I had this weird thing when I came out of college, having been in there for, you know, whatever, five years and years later, enough, I never really understood, never, no, it never sunk in that I would have to be an architect. When right. Finished my architecture, which sounds stupid, obviously. But I sort of emerged out and thought, Christ, actually, oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'm supposed to do. For me, it's just been a huge amount of fun. Um... So I've always been interested in other things as well, like I've done property development. Um, When I say that, I mean my own developments. Um, I did uh, opera set design for Opera North. When I came out, I've made furniture. Um, Always taught. Um, It's never been, apart from being a clueless sort of 20-something coming out and not really having a career plan... Which isn't that uncommon. No. Um, also, just doesn't the office isn't my natural habitat in a way. Um, so then I also then maybe part of the reason for that, but all, is that I then did the did the kids. By which I mean I'm the one that stepped aside for ten years or so uh-huh. and did the, the brought up Olive and Jimmy. Um, obviously not, not that Dida wasn't deeply involved she, of course she was she was able to do both things you know? <laughs> much better multitasker um, so I guess coming to the end of that 2013 um, kids I don't know were about 13 14 and 10 11 so I guess they're going to secondary school so I guess I was thinking about Christ I got I think something to do mm-hmm um, other than just teaching and little bits of architectural work here and there, which I've always done. Obviously, you keep it going, don't even work part-time and work with the kids and so on. Um, and my dad was dying. Um, at that so I looked after him for a year. We, we brought him into Eton here and got him a flat while he was dying of cancer in 2012, something like that. Um, and then that coincided weirdly with... idea for this project and me just not wanting to go back into mainstream practice during Mm -hmm. those horrible cavity walls I was describing Um, I've always been reasonably experimenting and and, researching so I sort of developed some of the architectural stuff with him while he was dying which was nice Um, he's an architect Mm -hmm. that's where we got on best (laughs) talking about architecture Um, and then and I guess, yeah, then he died and left me some money. Um, so he'd gone to Ibiza, parents up. He'd gone to Ibiza, he'd, he'd made some money through building a couple of houses out there, in his sort of retirement. Um, sorry, so he was originally Birmingham City, Archive. he he ran a big office, several hundred people and so on, and retired early and went and did his thing, had a lovely time, which is just as well, um, given he pegged out at 70. Right. Um... Anyway, he left me money, which was then was really useful for this house because obviously the research, although the research was funded, obviously this is a private house, and mm-hmm. you know, it's not obviously you neither legally nor ethically <laughs> could, could you take um, public funds for your for the house. Um, so it sort of came together like that, really. And then we had this garden in the back, which had not to do with, and I wanted, and I thought, well, actually, you know, why don't we actually make use of this garden, build a little annex. Um, which could be useful. My mum was living with us at the time in my Attic and I thought, you know, maybe she could move in there. Um, so it's a weird sort of confluence of things, I guess. Yeah. Money and motivations and ideas, I guess. Yeah. So we came together in quite a fortunate um, moment. Um, and so then I friend with Oliver at the Bartlett rang him up one day. We'd done some workshops twenty years before together. He's also a very materially makey kind of guy um and said, "I've got this idea for a house made of cork."
1: We <laughs> <laughs> had a laugh and agreed it was just cheap
2: an idea, but it sounded fun um, so then I did some sort of little um small buildings with little small pots of money, seed funding sort of thing um and then eventually it came around to making a, a larger application. I'm sorry, there's a woodpecker on the cork tree up here. Oh, yeah? Just a funny idea of him trying to peck a squidgy bark. His beak got stuck. Interesting, isn't he? Not making a noise, this one. Must be a dud. <laughs> That's right, it's a dud. <laughs> Um, sorry. That's okay. Sidetracked. Um, yeah, so then I got a grant um, from Innovate UK um, with industry partners and um, EPSRC for the academic partners who was who were Bath University and UCL. Um, I was an industry partner of the architects, the small architects firm that I was co-director of at the time. Um, and then we also had... Nigel Jervis from T Mauer, oh, yeah. you probably know. Mm-hmm. Um and Amarim. Um and on that basis we got a grant for the research, which which is the research was called um, the solid cork building envelope. Mm-hmm. Bit of a mouthful, and it was uh, for the building whole life performance call. Um, <laughs> um, which, interestingly, really opened out the project. It's interesting, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, God, I can't squeeze this. Because it often happens, um, you know, you have an idea for a project and you're trying to squeeze it into a research call, mm-hmm. which has its own agenda. And, and you're thinking, oh, does this really match up? And I remember at the time thinking, it doesn't really match up. And then, actually, that added a huge amount to it. Too. It's really stretching out the idea of the building uh, as a whole life um, thing. Yeah. Um, as I said, I told you, the thesis wasn't fully thorn- formed. And so this is the whole... Development, yeah. So we've got the funding for that. So then we'd talk about the research and then the research was always going to feed into this pilot project for this construction system. Um, so the research application made the case for why this was important research. Uh, and obviously part of that was that at the end of that was a privately funded pilot project for this prototypical construction system. mm mm-hmm um yeah that's about the story i think <laughs> <laughs> about where i was as an architect that's sort of that's the timeline really yeah so it this has really been a journey then
1: yeah 10 years
2: mm. yeah and as i say it's funny that all those fact when you look back and see how it all fits together and as you say your question that you know who i was and where i was at the time just in very plain circumstantial terms um yeah, even down to the you know to the funding and um and weirdly you know we also, that idea of that the buildings live and then they die um you know so it became there's a sort of death angle mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my dad died at the time you know, and then and there's part of that there's this weird when he died you know it's this weird thing of i was halfway through this stuff and thinking these thoughts were developing and the cradle to cradle model was We were doing drawings of that. Um so when we buried him, you know, I bought a cotton shroud from Shrouds R Us on the internet (laughs) and sort of wrapped him up in there. We did a whole home burial thing, you know, took him from the where he died um in the hospice and brought him back here in a camper van and wrapped him up in the shroud and got two planks with these rusty little old nails and you know the idea that the idea of what was going to happen to this house when it dies mm. it was definitely you know, not in a weird way, not in a macabre way but it was the same idea ecologically mm-hmm. that this thing we were burying him in um, and he was buried in the forest, you know, in, you know one of those green burial sites um, that he would just melt and everything would melt and rot and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. the idea that that's what's happening with this building, if it's a plant based building obviously mm-hmm. um, not quite the same for some of the other parts of the moon. Um, yeah, that was sort of tied into you know, the ecological imperative of death um, as a very, well, <laughs> as a vital part of connecting the the loop, you no, know, joining the circle. Yeah. Um, whether that's yeah, whether it's a tree or an human. Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of all tied, and then my mum's event is a humanist funeral celebrant uh-huh. so we're quite again, not in a carved <laughs> way but we're quite interested in talking about death in a nice way. I think that's so healthy. It's really for me it's vital. because obviously my personal view is that culturally it's just taboo. yeah it's like I remember at the time when my dad was the guardian got in touch about they wanted to do the, an article on natural burial sites and things and green burials and, and the journalist asked me to send some, send some photos so I sent some really lovely photographs of my dad lying in state as it were <laughs> in the camera bar with my kids brushing his hair when he, the night before the burial and we had a big family meal and some nice photographs you know mm-hmm. and she wrote back saying got, you can't send photographs you've got to be really careful you know What what element was yeah so you know, I gave up on that, screw you. Um, well, Because it's just, because people can't, won't find it difficult. I, mean, I understand, you know, obviously, yeah, it's not going to be the most straightforward thing to talk about always. And you might not want to sometimes, and I guess your mortality, and I don't know, people obviously find it really difficult. But until you come, you know, it's important, isn't it? In, in, in a really healthy um Life affirming ways. What I'm mm. trying to get to. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's got to be around that. Yeah. You know, it's got to be around. You know, if you happen to, if you think about, if you contemplate those things every, on a daily basis, then it's got to be done in in a, in, a, in a really constructive.
0: Yes. Way. Yeah.
2: yeah. You could Life lose yourself yeah. It otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, so me my, and my daughter, my daughter Olive, she's 23, and you know, she's um, she does grief workshops um and and. Quite often, that it's not just about death. That can be about loss and or, mm-hmm. or, or death of all sorts of things, not death in necessarily a physical sense. Um, but the importance of that, you know, gee, yeah, as, as a very natural part of. Well, not just natural. As a as a totally imperative part of.
0: Well, it's the only.
2: It's um, <laughs> stupid, isn't it? It's the only it's, guaranteed part of life. Such an obvious thing, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, it's such. It sounds really kind of stupid thing to talk about, doesn't it? But then it's interesting. It, that is true um it, it, it's a, it's a truism, isn't it but but then it's inter- if it is why do, why is it so difficult to talk about mm. and again with buildings, you know why is it such a difficult thing well, not a difficult thing people just it just never gets talked about you know we, we talked a lot in this big office they're big these big immobile objects, aren't they, and they're sort of always there, and they're so static you know, and yeah. and heavy and and the idea that those do die. You die? No, there are people who write the buildings must die book, uh, and, and obviously, mm-hmm. um, yeah, lots of literature on it. But um, it's not generally, you know. And yet, in our building life cycle assessment methodologies, you know, it's fifty or sixty years. So it is built in to the way that we talk about, the way that we think about them in those terms. Um, but I certainly never used to think about that. When I was designing a nice, big, new, shiny building for a, well, you know, for someone's paying you loads of money to do it, you mm-hmm. start talking like, yeah, but what about when this building you know, falls apart? And <laughs> <laughs> it's not probably a conversation you're going to have with a client, is it?
0: Yes, they might start to question whether they've got the right, mm. the right person designing.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in lectures, often I just open up the lecture often with a with a thing on. Well, first of all, I open up with a, with a lecture with a, with a whole series of slides on Troy. Mm-hmm. You know the, the nine layers of settlement. You know the hill had ended up being. It's not something I'm I'm familiar with. Okay, it's, it's it's nine cities. You know the mythical city of Troy turned out to be real mm-hmm. when Schliemann cut his trench through the middle of the hill in, in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, and it was sort of, it's a hill that ended up about ten meters of. I mean, so it's just three thousand years of civilizations, the rise and fall of. Uh, just uh, sort of. Uh, Premonition of the Anthropocene sort of idea, um, and then I lead up from that into the uh, into John Soane's Bank of England, you know, that lovely watercolour that Gandhi did of the of the Bank of England half in construction mm-hmm. and half falling apart. You know, and it's amazing to do with a building that's you know he spent forty five years of his life designing as this kind of citadel uh, of the British Empire, you know, the most secure building of it, and yet there he is drawing it as a ruin, you know, there and really sort of looking ahead to the sort of, and clearly drawing on I- historical images from Rome and Pompey and things, you know, civilizations falling, you know. uh uh-huh. You know, it's so easy to sort of sit there and think, that, well, A, you live forever, you know, which is what yes. quite often is a mindset, and B, buildings live forever, and B, civilization live with all of it, which is rubbish, you know. Do you think that's ego-led? Yeah, it must have a function, mustn't it, biologically, you, yeah. Mm. You mustn't, yeah, yeah. The inclination to <laughs> not envisage one's end too often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: Yes, I didn't expect this conversation to go no to feel that way. <laughs> no, yeah,
2: I... I guess it's great because you've gone back to the roots of the thing. There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased, by
0: the way. <laughs> and it's sort of
2: and it. When you ask like, how it changed, that yeah, none of the, you know. Probably none of that mindset would have developed. Well, not proper, Maybe none of that mindset would have developed if I hadn't done the project. So again, you know, it's a constant conversation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you're open to those conversations with the, in, in the design process, you know. Yeah. You know, what's it telling me, and what am I trying to do, and what's it doing back to me? And. You know, so. mm-hmm. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, God knows what it's going to sound like. Yeah, I don't know how to ask do a you, question after you, that. Isn't going to sound very dry. weird guy on forecast. Yeah. Christ, he's got a few issues. Yeah.
0: Oh, do you want to to say what you told me about the the sort of tomb like? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah, well, because obviously it does, it does come, there is an iconography uh, of, of what well, sounds pompous, a typology of, of sort of death here, isn't it, in terms of the, it's a very tomb-like yes. structure, the, the, the roof. Um, so yeah, there was a joke at the time, you know, when my, my dad was dying and get, you know, it was, was the, it's five pyramids in a row, and we had this little joke that you know that we could put one body in them, each pyramid as as we died. You know, you block it up as you as you presumably did, and you know, in the in, in the pyramids, yeah, yeah. And who's going to get the pyramid first yeah, <laughs> at the end here? Yeah.
0: People bagsying the uh, the yeah. room they like best. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you can't choose, I guess, can you? no that'd be cheating
0: yeah <laughs> you
2: get you qualified you take the that you get. <laughs> yeah yeah Um, so that was cork yeah <laughs>
0: What a treat that was to listen back to. Thank you so much, Matthew. The next episode is waiting for you with lots more talk about the cork house, talking about the CNC milling of the blocks, the construction process, and the benefits and limitations of cork, plus lots more tangents. So do keep listening to go straight into that episode. As per usual, loads of links in the show notes. Do click through if there's anything that you're interested in. That's it. I'm going to end there.